Welcome to From the Hip with me, Benji Moody. I'm privileged to meet and interview some of South Africa's legendary musicians on this podcast, but now and then I get a special treat. And this episode is no exception. He is unquestionably the most internationally successful artist from South Africa. He's rated as one of the greatest rock guitar players. He's seen super pop starting with Rabbit, mega super rock starting with Yes. He's a hit songwriter, consummate musician, and has scored over 50 Hollywood films. He's about to release his first solo vocal album in 34 years. It is a great personal pleasure to welcome from his home in Los Angeles, Trevor Rabin. Hey, Trevor. Benji, it's been too long. How are you? I am doing very, very well. So good to see you. Looking fantastic, man. You t- oh, yes, so are you. Note to Hendrix shirt. <laughs> I, 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 the first thing I noticed, absolutely. <laughs> With some background, like many young people from a musical family, because your mother was a, a pianist and, and your dad was a, a lead violinist, you were shoved in right. front of a piano and told, stroke, encourage, cajole to play. Do you think there were thoughts of you pursuing a career in serious music like your father? No. I think it was, with our family, it was just a given that any kid that happened to be born into the Raven family was stuck behind a piano at five years old. And uh, you'd better learn to read music before English, you know. It was a little like that. And, yeah, you can, you, you have to, practice before going to school and then after school you couldn't go out and play with your friends until you'd practiced for a while so from an early age that happened i guess obviously being exposed to structure classical music from an early age contributed to your involvement as a musician and i would imagine it's been quite beneficial in your later scoring of film soundtracks yeah but do you remember when and who was that light switch moment in your life where the guitar moved center stage? You know, I, I got so into The Shadows. You remember The Shadows mm. and Hank B. Marvin? And I just fell in love with that and, and I wanted to play guitar. And at one of the Estedfords where my dad said, if you do well in this Estedford and play well, I'll buy you a guitar. And that was the start. I started playing, started learning Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. And, and then I took a lot of the piano books, which were fantastic classical exercise books, and related them to the guitar and studied a lot of, well, practiced a lot of guitar from those piano books. Then at about 13, I started playing semi-seriously with a band and started singing and started getting into it and it wasn't long before I met uh, Ronnie and Neil and started doing bar mitzvahs and socials and weddings whatever whatever was available at I think we were 15 when we started doing that and the band was called Conglomeration and then you know cut a long story short then became Rabbit. But who was besides uh, Hank B. Marvin? Because that's obviously where your love of Fender guitars comes from. Yes. And Steve Kropp from Booker T. Who are the other influences from a guitar point of view? I mean, somebody like a Hendrix or a... Uh, Hendrix, definitely. Clapton, definitely. In the earlier days. Um, And then, you know, from the age of 17, 18, you move on to... I moved on to more fusion, uh, jazz-oriented players as far as stuff I wanted to do. But... uh, 
I tell you who influenced me was uh, sadly, sadly, so sadly, we just heard of the passing of Julian Laxton. Mm. And I remember when I was 16 or something going and seeing Freedom's Children performing at the City Hall in Johannesburg and Julian, I, the sound he got with his Gretsch just blew me away. And that that was very inspirational to me. And that was an influence. I know that you had a lot of respect for him and he had a lot of respect for you. But talking about conglomeration, you got together with Neil Cloud and Ronnie Friedman. Yes. Uh, and in keeping with, with the rock scene back then, you you were a three-piece. In fact, Doug Gordon, remember Doug Gordon, right? Yeah. Doug Gordon called conglomeration a cocksure trio. Uh, and, you know, you were the sort of, you've been quoted as being as the wonder brats of the, of, of, of the club and festival scene. How did that union of, of you and Ronnie and Neil come together? Were you all at school together? You know, we weren't at school. I met uh, Neil, my brother. You know, my brother Derek. He yes. was he was dating Neil's sister, and I just happened to go there one day to Neil's house, and I met Neil, and uh, that turned into me, Neil, and Ronnie getting together. Uh, I met Ronnie, and uh, we started playing, and. Uh, we were a, t- a tight, you know, a three-piece tight unit, mm. and there were other people who who were j- joined in at various times, but the three of us remained very tightly linked. Well, I remember conglomeration because you and I are the same age. We were born in the same yes. year, and so I remember conglomeration at, at the Rand Easter show. I saw you at Happy Teens. Oh at my the, goodness! And Happy Teens at the he- Benoni Hebrew Hall. And especially um, your your amazing gig at the Out of Town Club uh, Spring Festival. I think it was nineteen seventy, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and I think I think uh, Freedom's Children were yep. on that bill. And Hawk and, and, and Mutt- o- Otis Waygood. Yes, and wasn't Mutt Langer? I think he, he was with he Hocus. played on that one. Hocus, yes. Yeah, he was with Hocus Mutt. Right. Um, all, all those legends. I mean, it's sad with Julian Dave's gone. I mean, it's it's. Uh, yeah. But but. But but the band really stood their own with with the heavies as they were called, because you know right, Cl- right. Clive and, and and Ralph were behind a lot of these festivals. Yes, and I was just amazed at how you had progressed as a band. I mean, it was real kind of. Did you do covers and originals as conglomeration? Yes, it, uh, a lot of covers because you you know you really couldn't try and get too many serious gigs without doing the top 40 you know but uh for the most part when we were when we were really getting into rehearsing for enjoyment it was usually to write uh with with new material which was unusual in south africa did you put any singles out i've I've never come across anything no no the first was boys will be boys Hmm. we recorded some stuff i remember we did a cover of the song evil woman that never came out it was just in those days getting into a studio was like a huge thing and mm. some people had i can't even remember where it was but this guy had a, a home studio but it was a real studio and um we recorded this it didn't sound very good but boys will be boys i think was the first serious attempt after conglomeration i mean you 
Speaking of Freedom's Children, most people don't know that you actually spent some time playing with Brian Davidson and along with Ronnie as part of a kind of reconstituted Freedom's. How did that come about? Ronnie and I had about a year to go before we went to the army. And Neil was in the army at the time. So there was conglomeration had stopped, basically. We had at least a year before we we were going to be going to the army. So... And we got a call from Colin Prattley, who was the drummer. Mm. And uh, he said, look, I'm, I want to put Freedom's Children together. And uh, you two guys would be uh, perfect for it. And uh, we, we did, did a rehearsal, and Brian was the singer, Brian Davidson. And so uh, we tried it, and it, it worked great. We wrote a song called State of Fear. Mm-hmm. They made posters and everything. We went on tour with it. It was a good band, actually. Your State of Fear is one of those mythical singles. I've, you know, I collect South African stuff, particularly South African rock. Yeah. I've never, ever yes. come across it. Ever. I mean, oh, well, was it released? Must, it was released. If I find it, I think I've got it somewhere. If I find it, I'm going to send it to you. Love to hear it. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. When we recorded that, um, Brian had, uh, had moved out to uh, Cape Town, I think, so Eugene Havenkart sang it, and he did a great job. But that's what the record is. So then you went to the army, right? Then you came out of the army. Yes. How did conglomeration yes. then morph into Rabbit? You know, was Alan Rosenberg part of that in the beginning? Alan Rosenberg was part of the conglom- early conglomeration. Ah, okay, that clears that yeah, up. Yeah, and he was great. And he was actually a great rhythm player. He had great feel, and he brought a lot to the band. He was, he was an important cog in it. But uh, as Ronnie and Neil are always joking about, then he became sexual and uh, had a girlfriend who he was besotted with. And uh, there were a couple of gigs where we were playing at the out-of-town club. And uh, after the second set, I think, we had four sets, he said, "Uh, guys, I I actually have to go because he was going to his girlfriend. And so uh, petered out back into a three-piece. (laughs) <laughs> but he was great, Alan. When did you become Rabbit? I mean, was that a conscious thing? Was that when you met Patrick from Blurk that, that, that mutated? I think I can't remember when I had started doing session work for Patrick, but I was doing a, a ton of session work for Patrick and Rob Schroeder, EMI, RPM, just everybody, right? Mm. So I was doing all the session work, and then we went on the road with Freedom's Children. I think it was while I was in the army, we did a single a locomotive breath mm. and patrick put it under the name rabbit but i was the only member of rabbit in the it was just session band but it came out and it actually i think it, it, it got in the low charts Screaming, on his brow. 
said we should put Rabbit together. And uh, the captain in the army, Tinker Rhodes was his name. We had a band in the entertainment unit, which the captain called the Rabinites. Just an <laughs> awful name. But it was, we'd play Zeppelin and all kinds of things. I remember we did one show. Gwyneth actually, Robin was on the bill, and we used oh. to do just choir for her. And then we'd come on and we'd play this Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and I remember one of the generals or somebody saying in the paper, the, the army paper the next day, Davil's music, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't very popular. But it was in the captain's mind and all the permanent members of the entertainment unit, uh, it was kind of a cool thing. And we, we all kind of were enjoying it. And then Patrick said, why don't you do a gig on the weekends? And so when we had passes, we would play at this Club Tomorrow. I remember Club Tomorrow down in N Street, yeah. Yeah. In between songs, there'd be knivings or gunfights, you know. <laughs> you remember the place? Oh, I remember the place very well. Yeah. <laughs> so we played there, and then it was almost the minute we got out of the army, uh, we started putting Rabbit together. And I was, as I got out, I was back doing sessions every day, all the time. And then we got a residency at a place opposite the drill hall called the Take It Easy Club. That's when Rabbit really started. And that's when Duncan came into the equation. And the four of us played at this Take It Easy Club for nine months. And there had been a band there who had some great success called Circus. Bernie Miller's band. Right, right. And Gary, the bass player, the great bass player. We took over and... Within a couple of months, we would, it was really doing well, and the band was very popular. So halfway through the nine months, we did Boys Will Be Boys, and next thing it was, you know, looking good, and Charlie came out and was a, recognized as uh, music, <laughs> and, uh, and they started organizing touring, and then Rabbit just exploded. I mean, the band went from conglomeration and the early, early rabbit being a serious rock band oh, yeah. into an, quite an image-driven pop phenomenon. I mean, was that a conscious decision to go that pop route? Was that to, to escape the grind of sessions or? The, the funny thing is I was too young not to enjoy the sessions. Right. I, I never really saw it as much of a job because it was always fun to play. So everything I did was always fun and I was too young to get too tired. And there was always Southern comfort, you know. So. <laughs> but I mean the success of Charlie Rabbit went into overdrive I remember the mania that went on and it was stratospheric I mean there were sold out tours there was a number one album with Boys Be Boys there was media coverage and scrutiny I mean you were mobbed everywhere I remember seeing those yeah, remember no. you used to get those film clips in the movie houses Sunday Mirror yes and the Rabbit was always I used to sit and watch them
The whole album was done in a week. I think Neil, me, and Ronnie went in and did. In fact, Duncan didn't appear on Boys Will Be Boys at all. It was just me, Ronnie, and Neil. And at the end, we were talking about it and said, you know, Duncan's not even on the record because he was at the club with us and we were doing, you know, a lot of original, but also a lot of cover stuff. So when we came to do the original stuff, it was really stuff me, Ronnie, and Neil had got together and... When the album was just about to be finished, we talked and said, you know, Duncan's actually not performing on this record and he's in the band. This is crazy. So what we did, which worked really well, is I sang a song called Hard Ride mm. at, for yet from ages of Take It Easy. And that's the only thing Duncan does on Boys Will Be Boys. But we, we lucked out because he sang it so well, it became a really popular song. Mm. And then from then onwards, on the next album, you know, we were able to integrate as a four-piece a little better. Well, I think the interesting thing about both the albums, particularly Boys Be Boys, is that if you strip away the, the candy floss pop of things like Charlie, yes, and when something wrong is going wrong with my baby, the band actually had quite a harder edge that many would have thought. I mean, they're ripping rock tracks, Savage, Locomotive Breath, that, that's better than the Tull version. It sounds like... And Lifeline, of course, one of my favorite songs, right, right. which sounds quite influenced by Floyd and 10CC, you know, that those multi, right, right. those layers of harmonies and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On my way, 
Was the album, did you carefully craft that album for the pop market? You know, in our mind, when we did things and looking for the band, which is, I mean, the band played furiously together. I mean, it, it was like a polished punk band. If, if you listen to what we were doing in, a, in the Take It Easy Club. But then obviously for the record, it was like, okay, well, we, we, we've got to do something to try. We don't want the record to just come out and dribble down the floor, you know. So Charlie was uh, written specifically and looked like it was going to be a single. And then Baby's Leaving, a, a kind of slow song. But uh, all the rock songs, I mean, Rabbit was a ripping rock band. Mm, mm. I mean, and particularly as a three-piece from Conglomeration onwards, Ronnie, me and Neil were quite a unit. the follow-up a croak in the grunt and the night was released yes. the music mix on that album is a lot more eclectic than boys boys be boys i mean you've got you know you've got prog rock on tribal fence and sugar pie and never going to ruin my life and funk rock on the title track speaking of which i've got to ask you this what does the title mean a croak and a grunt in the night <laughs> i take absolutely no credit for that <laughs> that was a name that Patrick Van Bleur came up with. And it sounded so crazy uh, that we just said, yeah, cool. You know, you know, you knew the band. Sure. I mean, that's what we were like. Yeah, cool. Let's do that. That'll be fun. <laughs> you know. Breathe deeply as pen. 
the night. I mean, again, I mean, it was a very diverse group of songs. Was yeah. was that particularly the prog things? Was that the sort of blueprint for the new direction that you were starting to look at going in? Uh, that's that's definitely the case. And actually, Ronnie and Neil were hoping to go that way too. So I think it was a kind of natural progression, but we still integrated things like Hold On To Love and some of the more mm. soppy things. I remember seeing you to, around about that time as well, and it seemed that you were champing at the bit a little bit to, to, to move on, you know. Take me through the split from Rabbit. Had you had enough of the, the star-making machine and wanted to strike out doing your own thing? Well, I think we'd all kind of – it had been so intense that we, we actually rented a farm. I can't remember where it was, about 50 miles out of Johannesburg. I think the guy's name was Apple, and I remember we used to go down and see the cows being uh, milked. Milked, yes. We were just having a great time there. We were supposed to be there rehearsing, and we spent so much of the time having fun, especially me, Ronnie, and, and Neil. Duncan, for some reason, it was near Pretoria, so he would go home quite often, but we really didn't get to do much rehearsing. And then Sackbell was uh, having a an issue business-wise. So things were going to be changing from that from that point of view. So th that's when I actually, I wasn't getting tired of it or anything, but I went to London and my father was, was a lawyer. And so I brought him along to just speak to some record companies who were interested in Rabbit. In fact, I think it was financed by... Um, Oh, what was it called? McGrath. Gerald McGrath. Gerald McGrath. Gerald McGrath. He, he financed us going over there to, to try and secure a rabbit deal, which landed up not happening. And, uh, and I, I got back and it fizzled out. But I mean, well, you, I you, you, you had I, the Capricorn deal as well, which was in the, in the offing for America. The Capricorn deal. Yes, yes. Frank Fenter was uh, a huge supporter of the band. 
I got back to South Africa, and I think the band thought that the fact that I uh, had gone, that and there had been offers to, we don't want to bring the whole band out, we'll just bring Trevor out. Mm. I, I didn't have to say anything. My dad said, absolutely not. We're here for one purpose and one purpose only, to secure a, a deal for the band. And uh, so we came back to South Africa. But I think management thought that we were doing something else, and I think they were very interested in uh, putting an apple in the works. And uh, it kind of got in the way of the band, and eventually I just said, you know, this is too too complex. And uh, I said, I'm leaving, and uh, I went to London. And I never had anything to do with any of the people we, worked, we, we spoke to. The solo album beginnings that you put out before you left... Yes, um, which has got I, I got to tell you what my, one of my favorite guitar solos of all time on Love Life. I mean, it's just that's a rip, oh, thank you. That is a you. ripping solo. I've always loved that solo. It's, I still get goosebumps yeah, when I play that, it. Yeah. You also were were working around the clock to get that record out. You were doing yeah, and, and and no doubt making money doing all these productions for various people and appearing on albums right. and everything. Were you marking time while you? contemplated that move to London. And was that move scary? It was really scary. And it actually made me sad leaving what I knew. And, uh, you know, I was going to a place which I didn't quite understand London. It looked so different, for one thing, to Johannesburg. And I didn't know what to expect. And as I say, it was when I got back to South Africa and started left and started doing this record, there was nothing organized yet. You know, there was... There was no deal done or anything that got me into the situation where I was going to London. But eventually, we put something together with RPM Records. Mm. And that's when we went to London. I produced quite a couple of things in London. A band called Wild Horses, I produced, and Les. Oh, that was Jimmy Bain and uh, the guy from Thin Lizzy. Yes, Robbo, yeah. Robbo, that crazy Scottish yeah. guitar player. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be alive. You know, those guys but, but did you see beginnings? Because you did everything on beginnings by the kitchen sink, right? Kevin played drums. Kevin played drums. Yeah. Right, did you right. Did you see that album? Did you see it as an album that showcased your many talents and that you could use it to pitch for work in in London? Yes, I, I definitely saw it as um, the legal pad under my musical legal pad under my arm. But uh, it was also just a very natural thing. This is where I wanted to go musically, and uh, you know, this is what I want to do. And I, I just did it. And then there was a lot of interest from Chrysalis Records, who signed me, and uh, that was really it. And then I didn't tour on that album. And I was really just getting used to London. And then the next album, Face to Face, which really was a weird record because I was still trying to get used to what, what happens in London, although I was working and producing a lot. I even went to Italy and produced for three months. Mm. But um, we toured on Face to Face, and uh, I realized how much I was missing touring. We toured that album. Then I wrote uh, the Wolf album, mm. and uh, from, from touring, playing with people, I thought, I really want to play with people, and uh, I was lucky enough to have Jack Bruce hear the stuff and Simon Phillips, and they wanted to play on it, and I, you know, I said, yes, of course, mm -hmm. 
so uh, Jack and uh, Simon and Manfred Mann and other other great people uh, played on that album. So it was there was a process through the Chrysalis years. Those albums, Face and Wolf, I mean, they got great reviews. Yes, yes. It, it kind of looks like there was some label apathy there. Definitely. Maybe the reason that you relocated to America is because the British scene was so insular and not really geared up for the very melodic rock that you were doing. It was kind of a, a different thing. Uh, you're absolutely correct. You know, I was producing Manfred Mann in London and... A guy, John Kolodna from Geffen Records, had come over basically to look at Manfred for America because he wasn't, he didn't have a situation in America. And Manfred's huge in Europe. Mm. He doesn't really care about, or everyone should care about America, but he was doing well enough without it. So, but John Kolodna was very interested in pursuing Manfred. And I met him there and uh, he asked me, What do you do? And I said, Well, this and that, the other. He said, Yeah, I've got. Heard your stuff, and uh, I heard it when I was in Chicago a couple of weeks, some time ago. Uh, I heard the song, uh, Getting to Know You Better, mm. that I heard it on the radio in Chicago, and they're playing it quite quite a lot. And I sent him the Wolf album, and next thing, David Geffen's in London in the back of a princess, you know, those big yeah, cars. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's in the back of a princess. He says, do you want to sign to us? And And that was it. And uh, I, I split up with uh, the RPM people, and uh, immediately Geffen said, okay, I want you to move to Amer America immediately, and we did. And I was really happy to do so. I loved London, but I wasn't going to miss the, the weather for one thing. <laughs> yeah. And then immediately I started writing on it like a development deal with Geffen, and pretty much most of the material on the 9015 Yes album, mm. I wrote during that period. But then after six months, uh, there were some disagreements with Geffen and myself as to what should happen, and uh, I got a phone call, a kind of courteous phone call, but the phone call was basically, Trevor, hi, this is so-and-so. You dropped, bang. <laughs> Famous American label strategy, isn't it? That was it. There were a couple of false starts for you there in terms of putting a band together in America. I mean, there was there was the one much, that, yeah. that I think David Geffen initiated, which was what became Asia. So it was, you know. Um, yes, yes. You know, I actually went rehearsed with him. Yeah, I believe so. But but you didn't feel you didn't feel the magic there, did you? I, I I didn't like I'd known Carl Palmer uh, quite well. I didn't know Jeff Downs or, or Steve Hart. I knew Carl and and John Wetton was one of the guys who came and played with me in trying to put something together during the gap. And John and I got on famously. Mm. At one point, I I walked out to go to a pub during this. I think the second day. I think I was there two days. On the second day, I just said, John, you know, I I love working with you, but. This this thing's not for me. Mm. He said, well, listen, man. I went back to L.A. and I said to my then manager, I said, look, this, this is not I, – I can't do this. And he said, well, they want your songs. And I said, no, but I want to use my songs. So I don't want to do that. And, you know, Geffen basically said, if you don't do this, you're out. And then, of course, there was you, you were going to do something with Jack and Keith Emerson from ELP at some point. That was – Yes, I sent out tapes thereafter, and there were a number of options. One was RCA, Ron Fair. You know, the uh, he was with RCA at the right. time, Ron Fair. And uh, 
I sent him the demos and he came back and he said, you've got a flagship here, Owner of the Lonely Heart, it's a smash. And that's the first time I'd heard it in that way. Because, you know, when you write a song, it takes time before you can actually hear it, right? Mm. You, you play it, but you don't hear it. And uh, Ron said this to me and I'd sent tapes. He wanted, he offered me a deal on RCA. Phil Carson from Atlantic uh, called me and talked to me about Chris and Alan. And then uh, there was the other option, which had been percolating, but not really gone anywhere with Keith Emerson and Jack Bruce. There was going to be Cozy Pal, but he died. Right, that's right. He yeah. was a great drummer. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I went with Chris and Alan, and it's, it's, you know, the rest is what it was. But, I mean, there was at that time in L.A., there was definite label interest. I mean, you had Geffen, you had, you had the guy from RCA, you even had Clive right. Davis. You got to tell you got to tell me the Clive Davis story. Oh, I love that story. I think I think you know what it is, but I'm going to yeah, tell you. Yeah. And it was cassettes, right? So sending the cassettes out, it was quite interesting because I sent about twelve cassettes uh, to different labels, and I didn't hear from a lot of them. But uh, the one letter which I've got, I actually I got it. I don't know where it is. I've got to find it at some point and send it to you. There's, it's on like uh, Aristotle letterhead. Clive Davis basically saying, while we feel your voice has top 40 appeal. <laughs> and he's talking about Anna Villani Heart. We feel your songs are far too left field for the marketplace today. <laughs> you need to sound more like, I can't remember who he said. I think it was uh, Foreigner or Aria Speedwagon. And I was like, I don't really do that. And, but said, but thanks for your interest. And then when Owner Valoni Heart hit number one, it was on the Billboard charts. I took a Polaroid of it and I sent it to Clive, and I and I, I just said, "Have a good day," or something like that. That's a top. Not story. that he has to worry. He's had he's had enough success to not worry about that. Still, I think it's a great a great story because I think you it know, is, uh, yeah. uh, you know, from an A and R point of view, you're right. Clive Clive was a genius, but like all A and R people, and I, I count myself as well, you sometimes miss the mark. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Now with Alan and Chris, were Yes on hiatus, or or had Yes broken up at that point? Now, are we talking when you got together a cinema? Oh, oh yes, yes, we're done. There right. was no yes. And uh, Alan and Chris had a, actually put out a record called uh, Run to the Fox or something, or Run uh, something Run the Fox, a single that came out in England, mm -hmm. which was really quite good. But as Phil Carson said to me, they, they're really looking for someone to, a guitar, guitar player, singer, to work with. And that's when I met them. And uh, as we say, the Asia thing was already on its, on its way. And uh, there was no mention of John Anderson for months and months. It was quite amazing. There was no thought of anyone else. Very early on, Chris said to me, what do you feel about working with Tony Kaye? Because you're kind of quite a flamboyant musician. I said, well, screw you. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're the most flamboyant I've ever known. The bass player that plays lead guitar on exactly. a bass. Exactly. <laughs> on a Rickenbacker, right. Yes, exactly. He said, I think Tony Kay would fit into the band well because he's, you know, a meat and potatoes guy. He plays great Hammond. And uh, he's not looking to uh, do acrobatics or anything. And the four of us rehearsed for nine months. And it was great. And... That was the band. In fact, Trevor Horn 
he was the singer on the previous album, Drama. Drama, that's right, yeah. Right, right. Yes, it broken up. And so Chris said, you're the singer, but maybe, you know, for three-part harmonies, maybe Trevor Horn can do it. And I said, isn't that the guy who did Dollar? And, you know, Dollar was total pop, right? Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. So I said it with disdain, you know. And he said, yeah, no, but we worked with him on, he can definitely be a kind of part singer. And I said, yeah, all right, I don't mind. We can look at anything. And he was there for one day. I went to Chris and I said, no, I can't do this. And that was the end of that. And then Chris said, well, you know what? This is after months of, of playing and getting pretty good as a band. He said, why don't we see if Trevor Horn produces this? And, and again, I said, dollar? <laughs> and he said, I th- "Yeah, but he's he's got a he's got a good instinct." And and next thing, uh, Atlantic is signing us. So they hadn't signed us yet. Right. Next thing, Atlantic is signing us. Phil Carson's working hard at getting it together, and actually had me stay at his place because there's no money for anything in London. And uh, Atlantic sign us, and we do nine oh one two five. I think it was like a month before the mixes. Chris spoke to John, and they were, I think they were just talking, and uh, Chris was telling him about the album, and John was, oh, I'd love to hear it. And come. and he came in and was invited to sing on a track or two. I was delighted. I mean, at first, Chris said, well, if you don't want to do this, just tell me. I don't mind. You know, your voice is working fine. And I said, Chris, I'm happy to work with whatever makes it better. And John's got an amazing voice. I'd love to hear him sing on it. And if the and if the result of that is that I'm fired as the lead singer, <laughs> that's fine because we're going to have it. If, if it makes the album better, I'm I'm fine, and that's why there's still a lot of the album is me singing lead, and that's only because it was already there. And John said, "Oh, that sounds great. Let's leave that." And the stuff he did sing was great, but I mean he was involved so, so at the end, uh, it was fine on the road and everything. But when it came to do the next album, it was, okay, well, how do we work as a unit now? We've never done it before. I read somewhere that you, you actually were not all together with the idea of calling it yes, because you felt that your style of melodic rock, because it was less proggy. Yes. I mean, obviously you, were, you're, you are a yes fan, an early yes fan. Right. But the stuff you were doing um, and the demos that got used for 90125 was much more melodic. So you didn't, you wanted it to be cinema. And what, was it Carson that was saying you, you got to call it yes? It was actually Ahmed Ertigan. Oh, yeah, Ahmed. At the yeah. end of the day. Okay. I, because I'd been saying to Phil the whole way, I, I really, you know, I love the name cinema. We must keep it as cinema which is ironic, I went on to score films, but we were all kind of into it being called cinema. What happened was at some point, something happened where there was a a lawyer's letter or something saying you can't use the name. There's this band in, I don't know where, say Idaho or something, Mm -hmm. who has the name cinema, and it was going to be a bit of a battle. And and really what they were doing is seeing if they can get some money out of us. Mm to change their name. And uh, it was almost at the same time that John had sung, sung on the thing and Ahmed said, let's just call it yes. There's so many benefits to doing that. And I said no for quite, quite some time. And, you know, eventually my principles were stamped out. 
<laughs> I just thought it wasn't yes, you know. I thought yeah. it sounded like something else. And uh, but you went along with it, right? Else. I went along with it, and I, I certainly didn't complain. That, especially once things started happening, and uh, I was happy to listen. I was with the I was with Yes for like thirteen, fourteen years, so three times longer than Rabbit. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, it was their biggest album ever, based upon your songs. Yeah, no, this was the great thing. It um, it was the biggest album I've ever had in my life, and it was the biggest album anyone in the band had had in their life. Mm. So it was a, there was a definite positive uh, spin on the whole thing. It must have been so gratifying after knocking on doors in London and and in LA year after year to land up with a number one record, a multi platinum album, sold again sold out to us. It that five year period from nine oh one two five must have been like a whirlwind. I mean, you had you had nine oh one two five, then you had Big Generator and all the tours, the videos and everything. It must have yes. been crazy. It was crazy. I think I might have appreciated it more now, understanding what it meant. But at the time, it was just I was just getting on with with the journey I was trying to do, and that was just part of it. So it was it was almost like that was the job, you know. But I certainly had fun. Don't get me wrong. But you were in a band with with some pretty strong personalities and very outspoken yes. personalities. How did you deal with that? I did the same thing. You know, they were my songs uh, initially, and I had very, very firm ideas of what they should be. And I, I didn't budge very much. Trevor Horn couldn't budge me. I couldn't be budged. The only guy who had some influence in me because we were so very close was Chris. In fact, when we went on the road, Chris uh, said, look, we're going to have to play some of the old stuff because we're calling it yes. And I said, no, I understand that. He said, but look, there are a number of songs, you know, seen all the people, um, long distance, uh, a roundabout. 
we have to play those. But any of, you know, we do the whole album, the 9015 album, because everyone knows it. And, and then we do some other songs. And we're going to do a two and a half hour, three hour show. So it's going to be a long show, which I was happy about. But uh, he said to me, why don't you choose whatever you like on the other side? And I didn't really know. I knew the, the big hits, um, but I, I didn't really know Yes albums. I just knew the hits, and I loved Chris and the sound of the vocals. And it's not just John, it's Chris and John. So mm. It's such a distinct such feel, a sound yeah. Him. So he said to me, you choose the songs. So that was kind of uh, rewarding, knowing that I'm, I'm being given that opportunity. But I don't know if you know it, before the first tour, I went to Miami with my wife, Shelly, for a for a brief holiday before the rehearsal started, I was in the pool and my manager called me. There's no cell phones in those days. Right. And he said, have a glass of champagne for me. The album's number one. We were very happy. We went into the swimming pool at the hotel and a woman came down a slide into my uh, gut and my spleen. It was cut in half. Oh. And so I was, yeah, so I was in the hospital in Miami for six weeks, which mean the tour had to be postponed for a number of weeks. And uh, it turned out that that was a good thing in a way because more publicity could be had. The record was going through the roof. So when we started touring, you'll love the story. The manager said, look, you know, it's going to be a frantic tour. Um, so what I think we can do, because we know that's going to sell out, we're going to get a, a G3 uh, plane for the band so we can leave and come when we go. And we're going to have that for three, six months or something. And so we were very happy. We had our own plane and they put a logo on the plane. It was all, all very kind of romantic, if you like. And uh, cut forward to uh, Big Generator. We finished the album. We're going to go on the road. We don't know how the album's going to do because we're hitting the road quite early. The manager has a meeting with us and says, uh, this is just a, a real funny thing about Chris. The manager says, we're going to uh, fly commercial. We're not, you know, we're not doing that. We don't know whether that's going to be cost effective. And so we'll go commercial. Uh, it'll be fine. And, and Chris's response was, well, what if the album does well? We'll have gone commercial for nothing. <laughs> and we all just cracked up, you know. It was so funny. So five years goes past with all this hecticness and everything, and Anderson leaves uh, again. Yes. You make Can't Look Away. Right. Right, which, which went out on Electra. That's where, where, where I come in because we put it out here. Yes, yes. It had some really great songs. I love Sorrow. I mean, it's, yes, Sorrow it's, was... it's got that African, that melodic African feel to it, you know. This is a song that's single with the album.
Some of that on the new album as well, by the way, which comes out soon. Well, I want to talk about that because I, I really want to, I'm dying to hear the album. Uh, and then something right. to hold on to, which was a, really a great thing. Do you feel more comfortable functioning on your own, making all the creative decisions when you do a solo album? Well, I feel like I've written the songs and I just have to, you know, put them through the ringer and do it as opposed to having to play them to people and, and rehearse them again. However, with Yes, the input I got back and things that were was, was a huge benefit to the songs by the input from Chris and John were absolutely worth every penny of it, you know. Mm. But doing the solo album, it just... It just, I, it, it just happened, and it's always, it's so often happened where I just play the things, and it builds and builds, and once it's built to a certain point, it's like, well, I don't want to go back and look at anything that I think is right. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. So, mm. what I definitely do is try and get the best drummer I possibly can every time. Mm. One of the, I think, the most unusual situations was Union, and whose idea was it to put two bands together, two of everything, including two guitar players. Very complicated, wasn't it, Trevor? Yes, who are extremely different players. You know, it was a mess. Uh, it's funny, Rick, who's uh, Waitman, who's uh, one of my dear friends and has been since you knew, and the reason for ARW was Rick and I having a bucket list, you know, we want mm. to work together. But the union thing came about, and, and Rick, when he says... Oh, when I think of, I, I call the Union album the Onion album because every time I hear it, I cry. <laughs> he's, he's a real, he's a real card. He's a card, right? yeah, yeah, he is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but Anderson Brewer, Wakeman and Howe. Oh, right. The ABWH had done an album that did quite well and they were doing a second album and they had a producer who wasn't, didn't think it was going well. He brought the album back to L.A., and he took all Rick and Steve's parts and replaced them with session musicians. He didn't think they were working, right? Uh, wow. which obviously Steve and Rick were horrified by, but that stuck. But then I got a call from Clive Davis because they were on Arista, and he said something to the effect of, we're just finishing a great album with ABWH, uh, you know, with just short of a couple of songs, so I immediately, I've been in the business a while, I read it as, you have a problem and you don't have a single. Right. So I told him that. 
And he was he said something to the effect of smart ass. And I said, Well, just tell me the truth. He said, Well, yes. But uh, I said, Well, let me send you some songs. I don't know if I fit. If I don't know if these are songs I'm going to let go and um, I might want to do them myself. He said, well, send them to me. And let, let me at least have a, a look at them. I didn't remind him that he said no to Earn of the Lonely Heart. How the wheel turned, though. Eh? Right, right. And uh, he was so smart with it, Clive Davis. It was amazing. He said, okay, there's a song, Lift Me Up. That'll be the single. You go and do it any way you want. I don't care who's on it. You can play it anyway. So Chris and I and John and Tony Kay and Alan played on three songs I'd written, The Thing Called Miracle of Life, Lift Me Up, and one other. And that went on the album. We had nothing to do with each other. When the album came out, I had not heard one piece of, of the other album because Clive said, I don't want that to influence you because we want something that's going to be a single, and that doesn't sound, it sounds tired to me. So he didn't want me to hear the other album. Anyway, the album came out, and then he, between all the business people, it was like, wow, we could put a tour together with all these eight guys. So it was 1,000% contrived. It was a total corporate thing, uh, had little to do with music. The, the nice thing is when Rick and I met, we got on like so famously – Alan and Brill got on well. Rick and I, Rick and Tony got on very well. And uh, we had a great time and we had a great tour. And Derek came to one of the nights and he said, wow, it really sounded good. So somehow it worked out because it wasn't like there was this intricate surgery done to integrate certain people into the other person's work. Like, mm. you know, from Steve Howes playing into Anavalani Hartwell me finding another way to do what I'd been doing with the old stuff. We just played, and somehow it worked, and so it was a great tour, but it was a completely contrived thing. There's nothing real about it. I didn't know that the songs that you did, you had, you had done them separately, and they were just sort of patched onto, onto the Union album, and that you actually hadn't heard the other stuff. I said to Rick, do you, th do you even think it works? And he said, I don't know, I haven't heard the album yet. <laughs> He said, I don't want to hear the album. He said, I, we played all your songs live. I heard them and I know them. And, and we played those songs on the ARW tour. But he said, you know, I didn't really listen to the album after that. So it was a, it was a weird period. Talking about, yes, your final album with him, Talk, um, you exited the band and you made a move into scoring music for films. And, and yes. what was the catalyst for that? What, what made you shift in, in that direction? Were you tired of going on the road and, you know, the band dynamics, et cetera, et cetera? I was tired of, uh, of the trauma of starting an album, knowing how long it's going to take and how much pressure it's going to be for me. On top of uh, – uh, and, you know, uh, the talk to – I had started, I'd really started getting into the digital audio, which was brand new at the time. So to do the album, and I had a lot of support from the band, by the way, they weren't against it at all. And so Phil Carson said to me, we want you to produce this album. And the band was so supportive and it was really such a new day. You know how the tracks go now, Pro Tools, you can have a million yeah. tracks on there. At the time, it was four tracks per Macintosh you could have no more than four Macintoshes. So I had four Macintoshes bouncing between each other, plus I had slaved the 24-track with Dolby SR, but 
it, it was quite a procedure because we had to have these uh, guys who wrote code coming out from MIT to fix things, and they would just come there, watch me work. And so it was like a laboratory more than a studio. Mm. But uh, the album got done, and we went on tour, and we had a wonderful tour on, on, on that album. And at the end of it, it was the album didn't do as well as you know, 901 to 5 or anything. So at that point, I thought, yeah, I really, I'm spent as far as creatively doing this album. And I just thought I'd like to get into film scoring. I'd been thinking of that for a while. And I don't know if you remember, there was a guy, the dean of Vitz, um, Walter Money. I don't know mm. if you remembered his name. Mm-mm. No. He, my dad was friends with him, and he was a brilliant conductor and orchestrator and, and teacher. And during Rabbit, I studied with him, and I'm a terrible student, but he's such a good teacher. He took me through the whole thing of a conducting arrangement and the whole, the whole thing. So, you know, I, was, I'd even, I did some of it with, yes, I would write string parts and and I just thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity now to really get into working really intricately with an orchestra and still maintaining, you know, there's some scores where it's just a banjo and a piano, so it's mm. not one thing. But there'll be those big scores like Armageddon. I think there was an 80-piece orchestra and a 50-piece choir. And so, wow. uh, you know, I studied with Walter and it became – it was kind of natural for me, and because of the talk album, and technically I knew what needed to be done, and things I didn't know came quite quickly as far as the coding and syncing up and everything. Um, and that's when movies started, and uh, I look back now, it seems like yesterday, but it's 50 movies yesterday. I mean, I'm intrigued by composition for film. I mean, how does it work? Do, do you get a, a rough cut? Uh, or a guideline, a brief from a director? Or do you work from a script saying, well, we want uh, winter mood music or, you know, a marching band or whatever? It's, it's such a great question because what happens initially, I mean, in the beginning it was hard just to get in, but once you get some kind of reputation where you're going to be, this guy does this or whatever it is, then a director might send you a script, say, read the script if you're interested. We've cut the movie. Uh, we'll send you some pieces, and and then you do. You get a rough cut of it, and you start putting together some ideas. And then you meet, once it's a little further, that you meet with a director, and you sit with a music editor and the the film editor, and you map out the, the different spots where movies are going to happen. So the first spot might be at two minutes, three seconds, and 18 frames. It could be when the person's eye closes, that's when the cue starts. So it's, it's very intricate and, and specific. And so that, might, that, that piece of music might last for 12 seconds. And then you go to the next, oh, we need music here. And we'll agree on where music's needed. And then that might be seven minutes and 40 seconds, a big chase scene. And then there might be a love scene for two minutes. So you, you map out 50, 60-odd um, on average uh, pieces of music that is going to be there. But then the first thing I do, because in order for them to cut the movie together, they have to have some music to do it. So they use what they call temp music. And so there's music that exists on it, and they get used to it. So a lot of the time they'll say, you'll write something you think is perfect, and they'll say, oh, yeah, we, we like that, but just play the temp again, and they get used to the temp. So mm. what I did is 
I did a thing what I, I called affectionately my my system calls an underture, so overture but underscore. Right. And I'd write themes like for uh, if the movie was um, if the film was Nicolas Cage and uh, uh, there'd be a Nicolas Cage theme for, for for when he gets angry, and then one for when uh, a variation thereof of where he's in a love situation, and then there'll be the chase scene. And then I'll put all those together, and then there'll be the girl, and she has her own theme. And then there'll be the big theme, well, uh, that, that, the conclusion of the film. And then I would write like a seven-minute piece of music, hand it in, and just say, just listen to this, see if you like it, get used to it. And in, invariably, they would get it, and if they liked it, they'd get used to it. So when I started plugging those pieces of music into this, there was no more let me hear the temp because they were used to it. So that was a, a, a little asset that I built myself. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's very specific and it's so completely different to making a rock album because, first of all, your story's there. You're not telling a story. Mm. They're telling a story. You're just writing it with emotion and what music does. I don't know if you've listened to a movie without music to see the difference, but it's pretty amazing. Talking about writing, and I suppose the temp thing's quite interesting because it's not too dissimilar to laying down a track and going, you know what, that demo vocal is far better than the vocal I did. Let's rather use that. It's a great analogy. When you write material, specifically for this album as well, I mean, what's your process in writing? I mean, what, what inspires you on a song? Is it a riff on guitar? Is it a line that you hear in your head? Or it, I suppose it doesn't really come as one finished piece. Never, never. Mm. There's always that embryonic thing. And it, as you say, and I mean, you, it's, it's almost like you wrote this stuff because what you say is exactly accurate. You write a riff and then that riff leads to, oh, wow. I, and you sing something on and say, oh, those words kind of work there. That's not a bad idea for a lyric. And then that builds. And... uh it's it's always a building situation that's never the same. It's either, you know, often, even with film, the melodies are often just one note on a piano that's going down, 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 and then you, and then you enhance it, you know. Mm. So, and with song, it's, it's pretty similar, although you have the added thing where you need to tell a story and have a lyric and a, a vocal. So there's a, the storytelling aspect is different to the story telling aspect of writing for film mm. and the songs on rio i mean uh, were they written yes. specifically for this album or, or have you dipped into your i'm sure you've got a treasure chest of riffs and melodies and songs finished somewhere that you can dip in and go oh god i forgot about that that might work you know there's a lot of stuff where i had these these ideas which you know little piece it's funny um shelly would sometimes say to me we'd go for dinner and she'd say to me, um, she'd be talking, I'd be listening, and then she'd stop talking and say, you're not listening. Your eyes are glassing over. Do you want a piece of paper and a pen? And I'd write some <laughs> manuscript out, you know. So that would happen. And there's in the house, it's, I'm like an alcoholic. Instead of the bottles, there are pieces of paper all over the place. Uh, or there's a cassette somewhere, you know, one of those micro cassettes, just with me going, da 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 and sometimes I do it at night not to wake everyone up, and I don't know what the hell it is the next day. You know. That happened with Keith Richards and Satisfaction. I mean, he had that dream of the riff 
of satisfaction. He woke, put it down on a cassette player, woke up the next morning and played a bang. Went, oh, that's all right. That's not too bad. Are you kidding me? I didn't know that. Yeah, Keith. Keith wrote that uh, in a, in a hotel in in the states when they're on one of the American tours, and woke put it on the cassette player and 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 woke up the next day and took it to Jagger and they worked on on satisfaction. Just the riff. That wow. was That's all he had. You're set to release Rio, which was your your first solo album with vocals, in thirty four years. <laughs> yes, that's a long germination period, <laughs> Trevor. You know, it just went on and on. And and, and Benji, i got to tell you, in the last, I think it was rough, roughly two years ago, um, I said to myself, okay, you know, this is getting ridiculous. It's too long. I've been planning to do this album for so long. I phoned my film agent. I said, look, I just want you to know that from now for at least the next 18 months, I'm not taking anything on. I'm doing a, a record. And I'm not doing anything else. And I did that. And I never stopped. I started the album and I never stopped until it was finished. And you did everything yourself, except for drums, right? Except drums, yeah. And, well, no, not just drums. Uh, yes, drums, but uh, backing vocalists, um, the, a couple of backing vocalists came in on it, great session singers. And then Charlie Bissaret, who was an unbelievable violinist, who uh, actually played uh, on a lot of the most of the sessions for my movies? He was uh, in the violin section, and he, during you know when they tuning up and stuff, Charlie would always sit there playing these unbelievable riffs. I thought, man, I want to use that guy at some point. And I used him on my last solo album, was an instrumental record, and he was unbelievable. Yeah, he was phenomenal on this record. And then also one of the songs, which is called Egoli, Cindy Alter uh, co-wrote it with me. Oh, cool. She's in Nashville yes. now. She's in Nashville. I actually spoke to her the other day. She originally sang the song Egoli, and she co-wrote some of the lyrics and a melody on certain parts. And uh, I've re-sung it, but, uh, yeah, you know, she's part cock. Uh, composer with me on that. She's a great lady. The first single, Big Mistake, Derek sent it to me. It's a real corker of a track, i got to tell you. It's classic Trevor. It's got uh, soaring vocal harmonies. It's got punchy guitars. It's got a ripping solo. It's got a hook as big as a Paternoster fishing fleet. I mean, that hook is <laughs> so good. You must be happy with it. No, I, I was delighted with it. And it's, it's funny because it wasn't my, well, it's not that it wasn't my choice. I didn't talk about what choice would be the first single. The record company came to me and said, this is what we'd like to go with on the first single. So, um, and I'm pleased. I, I, think it's, I, I think it worked well.
I can't wait to hear the rest of the album. Watching the video today, I have to ask us, and I've, I've, uh, it was one of the first things I've got to ask Trevor, is that the same strat that you've always used? That is from, from Bothners in 1970. I knew it. I knew it. That yeah. was your first Stratocaster. Yeah. My first and the, the really the only one I play constantly. And you hand painted yeah, that, right? Uh, you know, it came as a brand new. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Hank B. Marvin, the same red guitar, brand new guitar they had in storage. And I remember Dennis Joint was the guy at Bothners. He said to me, uh, "Listen," I said, "Look, I don't have money for a brand new strap. Do you have any old ones?" And he said, "Well, we've got old stock." in in the back that we haven't sold yet i can let you have those for cheap these days the old stock is what means something right absolutely so this is i think 1970 he opens this case pushes all the dust off and he opens the case and here's this brand new beaming red strat and that's what i got and he gave it to me for i think 90 90 rand what is it is it a is it a late 50s early 60s strat a uh, 64 64 strat I yeah. knew it was, so I was, kept saying it. I remember seeing you playing it in conglomeration. And, yes, I, and, and I've always seen you play Strats. That's, a, that's, yeah, a, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's the same guitar. What can fans expect from Rio? What are you expecting? I mean, the, the, the landscape of the music business has changed. There's the only physical that's around, I believe it or not, is vinyl. I mean, what are yeah, you expecting yeah. from it? And what can the fans expect? You've mentioned that you've got a song, Egoli. What, what right. kind of styles are happening on the album? Is it eclectic? Is it focused? It's very eclectic. You know, um, when, whenever we played in Nashville or even Austin to a lesser degree, I'd always be intrigued and I'd actually grab my guitars once in a while when we were playing in town. And after the show, I'd go along, you know, the, the Nashville country road and hear all these great pickers. So I love country. Mm. I love the great, you know, the Vince Gill players. They, they're just so many great players. So believe it or not, there's a couple of country tunes on the album. Okay. You, they land up sounding cohesive, thankfully, uh, with the rest of the album. So there's some of that. And then there's, uh, I do a song called Oklahoma, which is about the Oklahoma bombing. Right. The Federal Building, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's quite a big epic-ish thing. And, uh, yeah, there's um, – and then there's, you know, there's the prog rock stuff and general <laughs> rock stuff, which is there. But the thing to me is I'm just so interested to, to see what people think of it because mm. it's been so long. And because I haven't done it for so long, it all feels so fresh to me. It's like my first album, you know. As opposed to doing Union, which was, okay, we'll get this done kind of thing. You know, <laughs> it was a labor of love. I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't do a record deal at all until the end of the album. Then I thought, oh, wow, I'm certainly not doing this, going to try and do it myself. I know some people do, but um, I wouldn't know what to do. And uh, my son's in the business. He's a producer, and it's such a changed business. I, I don't even recognize it. Mm. So uh, I got this guy. Thomas from Inside Out Music, who's who's a great guy, who wanted to actually do an ARW album, but I I said no. We're just touring on this. We're not doing any recording. They're the right label for for an album like this. I mean, they they seems they're, to be right. Yeah, they're more melodic rock and prog. 
Yeah, well, you're the expert. You, um, I'm glad to hear you say that because they've, they've been really supportive and, and, and great on this. But it was just amazing. I got to the end, and uh, Thomas had said to me, oh, if you don't want to do ARW, if you, if anything you do in the future, give me a shout. And when I finished the album, I just thought, oh, I'm just going to give Thomas a shout. And I never called. You know, you, you know the business. Hmm. You, you get an album, you get a lawyer, he plays this one against that one. And I didn't do that at all. I just called Thomas and I don't care. You know, just the right people. I'm not interested in anything else. He was great. Are you going to tour the album? You know, it's funny. I spoke to uh, Lou, the drummer, yesterday, and I said, you know, they're really talking about touring. And, um, you know, it's just so early. I haven't thought about it, but hmm. he's up for it. And, uh, I'm always up for, for doing a tour, so we'll see what happens. You know, I'd, I'd have to put a band together with a couple of people. I got me and I got my drummer, and uh, we'll see what happens. So what's on the agenda now for, for, for Trevor Raven? Well, you, you finished with bands now. You've, you, you're going to continue doing the soundtracks. You've done the solo album. What's next? I think I'm going to do another solo album. I want to do that next. Uh, I'm not jumping back into film scores, to, uh, I, I say where I, my extremely annoyed agent, but, you know, you've got to do what, what feels good. And uh, getting into another three-month slog on a film doesn't sound as attractive to me as getting into an enjoyable slog doing a new album. And listen, if I was to make, wait another 37 years, you'd have to play at my memorial. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you probably do miss the roar of the crowd as well. So, you know. Yeah, it's, it's great playing, you know. Finally, music in 2023. Are you hearing anything that kind of inspires you? Is there any of the new crop of guitar players stand out for you that you enjoy? You know, it's, it's, it's amazing you say that because so much of the music is I think, oh, God, I, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, when you hear pop radio, there's so much. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to be a musician uh, in this. And my son's producing a lot of the stuff, and he's really good at it, and he understands how to do it and what to do and, and in, understands what to enjoy. But uh, the great thing is there's some unbelievable players coming up that aren't doing that. There's, I, I, God, I wish I could remember the name. There's a tremendous guitarist. I think he's Italian from what's the island uh, of Italy? Sicily. Uh, Sicily. I right. think he's from Sicily. Marco was. Um, I, I'll email it to you. Just phenomenal player, and you know he's like 23. It's like how did you get to do that at this age? You're nuts. It's it's in good hands, should I say? Oh, there's some great stuff on YouTube. I mean, I watch YouTube yes. pretty. You know, I run a vinyl store in 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 Joburg. Yeah, that's my gig these days. And and uh, yes, yes. I spend a lot of my downtime on YouTube looking for great new music and people that inspire yes. me. You know, to to go out and buy something. Right. So hopefully, we'll see the album on vinyl. I hope. Uh, absolutely, it's actually a double album because obviously you have time constraints with vinyl. Right. Yeah. People might not realize, you know any too well what that means. Uh, you, you know, the old elliptical equalizer, you put that in at the end of the album because the bottom end goes. So that's all been taken into consideration, and uh, the vinyl should sound fantastic. 
because that's where I come from. That's where I started. Exactly. David Ravens, we are out in early October on all streaming and download platforms. Trevor, it's been a real pleasure and a gas to catch up with you. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Good luck with the new album, man. I really mean that. And as always, you know, I followed you since the 60s. So thank you for all the great music that you've made. I really wanted to say that to you. Oh, Benji, thank you so much. I've known you for many, many years, and it's always a pleasure. To, well, next time I come back there, we can get together and go and Absolutely. have a meal or something. Love to do that. It's Trevor Raiden. Please catch my interview with Benji Moody on From the Hip from Solid Gold Podcast. Mm-hmm.